Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, and welcome back. Thanks. And um, also Alex Lawson. Hi. Hi, Amber. Good to have you back. Yeah. Uh, thanks for taking over the show last week, guys. It was a great one. Oh, we were happy to. Um, I wanted to see if you guys, we're not going to talk about it on the show. We rarely do talk about bankruptcy law, but I wanted to see if you guys <laughs> had seen that, uh, regrettably, Alamo Drafthouse has declared bankruptcy. A uh, a great place to see a movie, have a beer. It they, they, it finally came to New York, and we were very excited. And I know, uh, yes. Who knows? I mean, I don't think they're going completely out of business. I think it's just a reorganization. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I was mean, sad I, to see it. I was sad to see it too, but not altogether surprised. I mean, what a year it's been for that industry. I mean, yeah. Movie theaters have had it really rough. Yeah, and I mean, they also expanded right before this. So it's true. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure that they were maybe a little bit overstretched when all this hit. Our uh, our former colleague Maria Chuchian, uh, who now works at Reuters, uh, was on Twitter yesterday, and she said that you know she she covers bankruptcy, and she was like, the Alamo news was the one that blew up her her her, her phone the most from her non bankruptcy following <laughs> friends. People were most concerned because there is the question of like, does this mean they're closing or they're just scaling back, like you said? Uh, so the interest is high. Uh, I love that know. that was talk of the town because I had a several people check in with me to make sure I was okay over paper source declaring some <laughs> bankruptcy issues, um, which is a fair because there's still a paper source calendar at my desk at work that I haven't seen in a year. So I feel personally responsible for letting that company down. Uh, well, right. we have a good, uh, I think we have a good show ahead. Yeah, I'd say so. We're going to uh, remain in sort of covid business strife world a little bit later. I know, Bill, you rounded up a bunch of interesting cases uh, that sort of digs digs down deeper into the the legal fallout of uh, of the pandemic, which is always ripe uh, for news fodder. Um, but first, uh, there's uh, there's a little bit of intrigue. We got some we got some spicy drama in the scintillating world of litigation boutiques. Uh, there was a New York firm that was just formed just over a year ago by some former attorneys from Boyd Schiller. And those attorneys are now, those attorneys at that new firm um, are now locked in a pretty bitter feud with one of their founders that just last week spilled into federal court. The the firm is called Roche Cerulnik Friedman, and they filed a lawsuit against one of their founders, Jason Cerulnik, uh, basically alleging that he, uh, he engaged in, quote, abusive, destructive, erratic, and obstructive behavior. Uh, which led the firm's leadership to vote him out. Uh, now, Cerulnik has refused to leave, and now the firm is effectively asking the court to, you know, uh, bless their dismissal of him uh, and basically force him out uh, through through federal court. So I lots love, to talk about. I really love the descriptor of what his conduct was. You know, abusive, <laughs> destructive, erratic. I think he said a few other words in there. Uh, what was that all about? That's pretty uh, strong allegations there. Yeah, and I, I I think it's it's important to it's always interesting to talk about litigation boutiques because we 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 focus on big law a lot obviously because they are industry you know sort of paragons and all of that, um, but you know litigation boutiques while they're not as big and powerful they are like major power players when it comes to um, you know industry trends and things like that they are they are closely watched um, I I guess is what I'm trying to say and like I say and Boy Schiller is among um, the sort of most prestigious of them and these are some some lawyers who left that firm decided to start their own like I said it's called um, Roche Cerulnik Friedman uh, and when they formed the 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 firm just over a year ago they were 
really trying to get into some sort of cutting edge uh, legal areas, focusing on things like that are sort of emergent, like cannabis, cryptocurrency, fintech, stuff like that. They also said they were looking to craft, quote, a collaborative, collegial, transparent, and inclusive firm. You just um, hit like, that was like Mad Libs of press releases that we get. Like, <laughs> I know, I like, know. We want to be collegial, transparent. We're also hitting on like cutting edge areas like cannabis and <laughs> cryptocurrency. Yeah. Anyway, keep uh, going. Keep talking about this firm. Yeah. No one ever says that they want to do a non you know, non transparent and non collegial firm. Though right. it seems that at least in one regard, according to their complaint, that's that might be what they have on their hands. Um, and I do want to stress, uh, we're talking about a complaint. All the usual caveats apply. That's sort of where we're sourcing this from. But basically, the firm says that it's pretty much uh, immediately after they set up shop, um, this guy, Cerulnik, revealed himself to be basically a completely unworkable partner. He was uh, exhibiting very volatile and at times abusive behavior. Here's a couple of the highlights or lowlights um, of the allegations from the complaint. They said he engaged in, quote, a pattern of verbal abuse and bullying towards other partners, punctuated by screaming fits of rage directed towards those who disagreed with him. Uh, they accused them of mocking and belittling attempts by other partners to increase diversity. Uh, obstructing associate assignments uh, by ordering them to sort of prioritize uh, clients uh, in cases that he had brought into the firm, sort of funneling them towards his portfolio and away from others, um, creating an unsustainable work environment for associates, leading some of them to threaten to quit if he if they continued to ha to be staffed on his cases. Um, you know, a real a real smorgasbord of alleged wrongdoing or alleged, uh, you know, sort of just bad boss type of stuff uh, to sort of pin it all together. Here's a quote from the from the complaint. Cerulean could turn what was supposed to be a collegial, respectful, collaborative and diverse law form into a war zone in which Cerulean fought to maximize his bottom line at the expense of associates, partners, diversity initiatives and the firm itself. Yeah, they're really pulling no punches with how... Um you know, stark, they're painting this portrait of what it was like to work with him. Um, and then they ultimately voted to vote him out of the firm, right? Yeah, yeah, right. They, 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 the two thirds of the partners organized themselves and cast a vote to, uh, to basically oust him as soon as this behavior became somewhat like basically untenable. Um, but now, uh, he won't leave. As I said before, um, he's, they've taken his name off the firm website um, but he is not sort of officially vacating his post. He's still sort of holding himself out as doing and gathering business on behalf of the firm. So now they got a little bit of a mess on their hands and they have sued um, to, to, to sort that out. The central issue um, is sort of over the, over the terms of his departure, which are laid out in a, in a memorandum signed by the founding partners. And in that memorandum, they basically have procedures in place for when a partner has to leave and how much money they are owed and the circumstances under which that gets triggered and things like that. Now, he has said that he's open to leaving since his colleagues have made it clear that they don't want him there. But he is demanding um, more than the memorandum stipulates, at least according to, to the firm. Um, the firm has described that as basically a shakedown, um, and they're now seeking a declaratory judgment from the court um, that they fired him or that they dismissed him for cause and that it should just revert to sort of the very black and white uh, you know, terms of dismissal that's in the memo rather than some uh, extraneous negotiation that's uh, starting to go on. It's always very useful for folks like us who cover this industry, but, you know, we're not on the inside of it. So to to get the details of these sort of acrimonious, uh, you know, firm 
breakups, uh, yeah. have it spill into court where more of this stuff is public. It's always fascinating to get uh, a little bit of a look at how things go really, really sideways inside yeah. a firm. Um, yeah. Is there anything else here in terms of, you know, in terms of this story beyond just this, the, the acrimonious stuff we were talking about before? Yeah, I... Uh... It's there's a little bit of a fun wrinkle here. So I had said um, that they were start that they wanted to get into some cutting edge areas, and I mentioned cryptocurrency. Um, well, that appears to be at the center of the dispute over Cyrulnik's uh, departure. So before they had this falling out, the firm retained um, a company as a client that's not named in the complaint. They're just called a startup company, and that company opted to pay its retainer in uh, digital assets which in the complaint are, are just known as tokens. Uh, and that was sort of, that's a, that, that's a base, you know, it's basically a cryptocurrency or it's some kind of digital asset. Very top of mind right now with Dogecoin and stonks and things like that. Um, and that was, those tokens were divvied up among the partners. Now, um, according, to, according to the complaint, Cyrulnik has said that the partners um, are just trying to wrestle away his tokens, which have spiked in value, and that the, this, the, these allegations about him being a terrible boss and abusive and all of this are completely pretextual. Um, and I should I should stress that the complaint is saying that like all we have is the complaint. Cyrulnik has not filed anything yet. The complaint is sort of laying out Cyrulnik's counter narrative and and then also refuting it in the same document. So they're trying to get ahead of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll monitor the docket, of course, um, but uh, it's gotten pretty ugly already and uh, figures to uh, figures to keep going on that trajectory if these uh, if this complaint is any indication. For the second batch of things we want to talk about today, I want to take it back to something that I haven't talked about for a while on the show, but really miss discussing, and that's patent law. We had a Hell really yeah. big, yeah, it's a it's a good one, guys. <laughs> yes. No, seriously, though, we did have a giant verdict that came down this week. It's in the Western District of Texas. A jury delivered one of the biggest patent infringement wins in history. Um, they awarded over $2 billion, with a B, um, to a group called VLSI Technology. They found that the computer chip maker Intel had infringed on two patents held by that group. So... There's been a trend in recent years of pretty big patent verdicts, and this is right in line with that. Yeah, two billion is enormous. Uh, but I mean, what's up with this? Why? I mean, why are we seeing more of these bigger these bigger verdicts? Yeah, I mean, I think the patent lawyers listening kind of know that it's just a lot of the disputes are over really high value technology, and I mean that makes sense in this world. So you can rack up damages pretty quickly, especially with some of these, some of this tech like these chips that are somewhat ubiquitous, and and so there can be a lot of damages pretty fast. But mm-hmm. over the past decade, we've seen really high damages awards in cases like this, many of them five hundred million or more, and um, we've seen several verdicts that topped one billion. Tuesdays is only the second one to surpass the $2 billion mark. So we're really ramping things up here with this one. Um, But I would like to note, you know, in fairness, they don't always stick. You know, often these verdicts are lowered at later stages, you know, on appeal or wiped out by a judge later on or even settled as the case drags on through, you know, additional stages of litigation. It's obviously noteworthy when juries are handing out two billion dollars of damages for anything. I think we should we should talk about the merits, uh, the sort of substance of it a little bit. But please, Amber, let's give us the Reader's Digest on these very scintillating uh, <laughs> yeah. computer chip patents. I'm not going to get you too in the weeds here, but there's some. But what are they arguing? Micro <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Bill. Okay. 
So here's the basics. Um, VLSI filed a suit <laughs> arguing that Intel sold um, billions of computer chips since at least 2008 that had used patented energy saving and speed optimizing tech. So you can see why damages would be so high. They've sold allegedly billions of these chips. And if all of those infringed, you see where the numbers come from. Yeah, yeah. So meanwhile, Intel at trial really was just like, no, we, we didn't do that. Uh, they said that the VLSI patents are basically worthless. They told the jury that no company has ever licensed them. They're not used in any products, they allege. Um, and they, the patents themselves have been sold between companies various times for really small sums of money. Um, Intel's attorney basically said the damages requested here are, quote, an outrageous demand. Um, these these like I, I never heard of these patents. I don't see these patents <laughs> in the streets. I don't see them at the conferences. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I think a lot of Didn't people work out have for heard them, a lot of people have heard the term patent troll. And this isn't quite that, but it's it's inching to, into that area because mm -hmm. the case is one is part of a pretty, pretty sprawling effort between VLSI to go after Intel's, um, you know, use of patents VLSI holds. Yeah. So. VLSI is actually a unit of a hedge fund. The hedge fund's called Fortress Investment Group. So you can see, you know, just the what hedge funds do. They come up with ways that they can leverage money and they think they can get money for these patent holdings that they have. Yeah. Uh, the group has sued Intel over at least 21 patents. Um, Intel's been arguing that the whole thing is part of basically an anti-competitive patent aggregation scheme to shake them down for money. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of shakedown talk so far. A lot Sorry, of shakedown talk on the show today. Yeah. Yes, um, yes. So they're going to face off many more times. So they, they go before Judge Albright, who handled this uh, case we're talking about. They go back to his courtroom on a couple of the other patents in April and another jury trial. Um, and again in June for more litigation. So there's going to be a lot more to come from just this one dispute between these two parties. The courtroom is like uh, like a public defender and, and a prosecutor being like, damn it, Steve, not not again. They just know each other. They have a rapport. They're just battling it out over and over yeah. again. I mean, since we're going to see them back in court, I did want to just give a couple other highlights from this case that, that we're talking about with the over $2 billion ver verdict. The jury came back really fast, just a day after closing arguments in this one. So, you know, read the tea leaves there about how you think everybody did in this case, but it's pretty quick. Um, the jury did rule against Intel, but I think it's worth noting here. They did not say that this infringement was willful. And the reason that matters is because if it had been a willful violation, then Judge Albright could have tripled that $2.175 billion award. The old so triple it seems eye-popping now, but yeah, yeah, it could have been even bigger if they'd found willful infringement. Um, and then just sort of the last thing on this is, of course... Intel is appealing this, so it's not the last we'll hear of this case in particular. For our main story this week, we are going to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic. No way. <laughs> I think we're Something all getting new for us to cover. I think we're all getting the sense that there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Numbers are down. There's vaccines rolling out, but uh, things are not over uh, as we are constantly warned. And yep. as proof of that, we've got a bunch of new COVID legal cases to talk about this week. 
Um, the first one that we're going to hit on is uh, employment law. So last week, Walmart uh, became the latest and and obviously one of the biggest uh, employers to face a wage and hour lawsuit over mandatory pre-shift screenings for COVID-19. So in this case, it's a proposed class action and collective action that was filed in California federal court. A group of Walmart workers say that the company violated the uh, the federal Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, as well as California state law, by implementing these things like mandatory temperature checks, a Q&A about whether or not you've been sniffling or you know, you've interacted with anyone who had COVID, all the stuff that we've everyone listening has probably gone through in terms of a COVID screener at some point. They're making employees do that before they clock in, according to this lawsuit. So the workers were, um, they claim that they were required to show up as much as 30 minutes before their shift to do this stuff. So, you know, you're commuting to work, you're all the other things that go into work. Then you have to get there 30 minutes even earlier, um, according to this lawsuit. It's sort of the COVID version of what were known as donning and doffing lawsuits, which were lawsuits about this same issue, but in the context of whether or not employees should be paid or paid overtime for things like putting on mandatory safety gear in in you know non-pandemic settings. If you work in a meat yeah. processing plant, you have to right. put on your gloves or whatever. Um, so the, I think one interesting wrinkle here is is Walmart as the as the party. Not only are they a huge employer in the country, one of the biggest, and not only have they been um, sort of seminally named in some of the really really big uh, employment class actions over the years. But Walmart in particular was sued back way back in, in April of 2020, right as the pandemic was really in its mm-hmm. earliest sort of scariest days. They were hit with a fairly high profile wrongful death lawsuit by one of its uh, by one of the company's employees um, who had unfortunately died of covid. And uh, the crux of that case was that the company did not do enough to prevent workers. So it's sort of an interesting thing to look at here. This, this, you know, there's these employees are saying that you're maybe doing too much or that you're having it spill over into our personal time, all the things that you're doing. And, you know, the, the, the sort of swing back, uh, in terms of how you respond to the pandemic. But I, I wanted to, before we move on to the next story, I wanted to ask Amber because obviously Amber is running our employment authority, uh, new, new section here at law 360. What's the deal? I mean, what's, what's up with these cases? I mean, is this, you know, do, do these, uh, you know, hold water? Yeah, this is so interesting because you made some good parallels here. It does have, um, a bit of a, a similarity to, like you said, those donning and doffing suits which have been around a million years and that's about, you know, uniforms and protective gear that people have to put on and do you have to be paid for that and it also has a little bit of similarity to some um, suits that we see that are bag check suits Mm -hmm. about you know Mm -hmm. let's say you work at the apple i store and they have to check you before you leave to make sure that you didn't steal anything Mm. and can you be paid while you wait in line to get checked out at the end of your shift basically so there's lots of things around wage and hour that are like this For me, um, the thing that's most interesting in this context, I mean, we haven't seen a lot of things that are about health screeners because we haven't been in a pandemic before. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what parallels are drawn to other things. And if there are some examples of uh, places that maybe have had checks for, let's say, healthcare workers maybe having to check in about whether or not they have flu-like symptoms, which would be an analogy. The other thing I really like about this one is it's California. 
California is often sort of a vanguard state. It's got some yeah. pretty hefty worker protections out there. So part of the suit is under federal law, but parts under state law. So we may see what California, what stand they take. So definitely knew, one to watch. I knew we could rely on you for for a, a tight one minute breakdown of the employment law issues here. <laughs> well, you know, I love talking about it, guys. So happy to plug away at this. But yeah, we have a whole wage an hour um, newsletter now. And this is obviously a suit we're going to follow all the way through. Yeah. So um, to pivot from from employment law, we're going to go to um, the the question of uh, procedures in courthouses, judicial procedures and open access to courthouses. This week, um, a watchdog group sued a Pennsylvania state court judge for not allowing virtual access to proceedings in his courtroom. And I would stress that it's, they're not suing the whole Pennsylvania court system. They're claiming that this one judge is really not allowing for people to have access to the courts during the pandemic. Um, the group is the Abolitionist Law Center. They're a watchdog group. They observe courtrooms. Um, and they claim that uh, this judge, Judge Anthony Mariani, who's a judge in the uh, Allegheny County Court of Common Pleas has repeatedly rejected their request to remotely observe uh, criminal proceedings in his courtroom. The backdrop here is obviously that that you know courtroom proceedings are and court documents and uh, they're presumptively open to the public. Yeah. Stuff gets sealed all the time. We know that as people who dig through these documents all the time and try to get into courtrooms. But the presumption here is that they're, they're, you know, that they should be open, and, and that if you don't want them to be open, there has to be a good reason for doing so. COVID obviously changes things. It, everything has been sent remote, and it, that has thrown all sorts of, uh, you know, ways that the court works into, you know, new problems. One of which is how do you assure this open transparency when you're doing everything um, remotely? This watchdog group that brought this lawsuit says that the state court system in Pennsylvania has provided judges with the tools and the infrastructure and the funding to make sure that they have the ability to do that, that if they're holding a hearing, that they can make sure that people have remote access to it. But the, the group in their lawsuit says that Judge Mariani's staff is still meeting in person and working in person. And that they have sort of steadfastly insisted that the only public access that they will grant to his proceedings is people who want to show up and sit in, you know, sit in the gallery and watch the proceedings in person, the old school way. Um, and they're saying that basically, you know, that that is a de facto and effective uh, ban on courtroom proceedings because they can't go. It's unsafe to go. Mm -hmm. uh, the quote from the complaint. By forcing court watch volunteers to physically enter the Allegheny County Courthouse and remain inside his courtroom for an extended period, Judge Mariani makes it impossible for ALC's volunteers to safely observe and report on his proceedings. So it's just, you know, it's it's not that that he's banning people from his courtroom, but given the moment and given the things that you need to observe a courtroom, he is effectively banning them. I think yeah. that one's really interesting because wasn't it just a couple of weeks ago we talked about another judge being um, sued for not quite the same thing, but he yeah. was refusing to have any remote hearings at all. Yeah, it's uh, like a court that that was in California. I thought of this as like a as like a corollary to this a little bit because that was about sort of they're they're doing too much work in person. This yep. is about, of course. I mean, you know, do whatever you want, but like if, if people can't go there or don't feel comfortable going there, you need to provide an alternative. I also feel like this might, we might see some more of this, especially as we, especially as we enter into this kind of liminal period where we're 
we kind of already said we're tamping down a little bit. It's safe to some degree, and it will be worth watching to see when certain judges and certain courts declare like, okay, this thing where we zoom in all the time, that's done now. And I wouldn't be surprised to see more more pushback. But sure, yeah. once you start putting, you know, once once you get into that gray area, I'm it, really fascinated. It becomes by it. it becomes yeah. the you know comfort zone for people you know yes. are you are you a very high risk person you know most people now want to go back but some people don't want to i think mm-hmm. even beyond courtrooms and public settings that's going to raise all sorts of you know in terms of remote work for private companies and sure. everything else yeah uh so what else we got the final thing we're going to talk about is real estate law specifically the issue of ev- eviction bans that have come out of the pandemic um First up is a a new lawsuit filed by a group of New York landlords who um, they claim that the state's most recent eviction ban uh, is unconstitutional. The new ban was imposed in late December, and it it put eviction cases on hold pretty much fully until uh, until the end of February. But it also allowed tenants to fill out these these so-called hardship declaration forms mm-hmm. that would seek to further freeze uh, evictions till till May. The idea being you sort of you know it's a like an affidavit that says i um, i'm 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 specially situated i can't you know exactly. I, I can't you know comply with this or whatever it might be. Exactly. So the landlords uh in this lawsuit they say that that um that specific requirement violates uh the first amendment because it forces them to provide those forms to their tenants which they say in effect sort of forces them to speak in favor of a government program that they basically hate and it 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 you know it makes them give out it makes them just speak on behalf of the government in a way that they don't want yeah. to and it's sort of compelling them to to speak in a certain way they also claim that this ban, uh, you know, it, it it's a whole litany of constitutional claims it, that it violates uh, due process by not giving them a way to challenge uh, yeah. t- th- these claims that the tenants are making, that it gives too much power to the judiciary because they don't have a way to. So it's just a, a lot of different sort of uh, angles of attack, as you often see with with a constitutional um, challenge to yeah. to a, a law like this. In a similar vein, uh, last week we saw a federal judge rule uh, in Texas on on a similar ban, but in this case it was a federal ban that was imposed by the Centers for Disease Control, um, and and what the judge said really was that the the CDC and and really the federal government more generally lacks the constitutional authority to impose a nationwide eviction freeze. We've talked a lot about eviction freezes um, over over the last year on this show. And there's been a lot of talk of should the federal government do more versus sort of the patchwork approach of different jurisdictions. What this judge says is that they don't have the power to do that. Um, So the CDC put this order in place in September after an earlier measure that had been included in some of that really early COVID rescue legislation after that had lapsed. Yeah. Um, And the order has been sort of applied unevenly and there are gaps in coverage, you know, if you talk to housing advocates, but it provided some level uh, of, of uh, a moratorium on evictions. But last week, uh, this federal judge in Texas, he said flatly that the federal government lacks the authority to impose this ban. He said that the power to regulate interstate commerce, which was what the CDC relies on to do this, um, does not extend to these individual residential property rights that are at at play here mm-hmm. um and and basically that doing so would be unprecedented for the federal government the quote 
The federal government cannot say that it has ever before invoked its power over interstate commerce to impose a residential eviction moratorium. It did not do so during the deadly Spanish flu pandemic, nor did it invoke such a power during the exigencies of the Great Depression. The federal government has not claimed such a power at any point during our nation's history until last fall. So that was a mouthful. Um, as I, I mean, I mean, I mean, you love you, you love to come across an exigencies, right? Uh, it's uh, in the, world. Um, the, the folks reading on podcasts love to uh, love to have that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty unambiguous uh, ruling there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. It, I think, like I said earlier, it's interesting from the perspective of we've talked so much about should the federal government do more, but this is really asking: do they have the power? Um, to do more and obviously that was passed under the last administration we have now a new administration so we will see what what happens here in terms of maybe they do something new maybe um uh you know they they lean on congress to do something um the cdc has already appealed this ruling to the fifth circuit so um we will see what happens with this one wrap up today's show guys it's been uh, an action-packed one lots of big developments this week it was good yeah i mean I'm, I'm, I'm just glad that you didn't ask uh about whether or not alex was drinking a white claw on the show last <laughs> week look there are things i shouldn't know i it just should be a mystery <laughs> well, that is not the uh that's not the approach i expect you to take but that's certainly a welcome development yes, our employment law uh, expert and also our boss uh yes is, it's great. Uh, you know i might need to retract this statement from the record yeah, wow. yeah, i apologize for saying uh, it. it's too late and we are out of time you can't uh, amend it uh we gotta wrap up the show i think you know no, fair point. We are out of time. Um, thanks for being with me today, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. Thanks, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our contributing reporters, Danny Cass, Haley Knoth, Max Kuttner, Matthew Santoni, and Dave Simpson. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please rate us and leave a written review on your favorite podcast platform so other people can find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, go on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.